the fantastic gift of Paul's letter to the Romans. It's unique among the letters of the New Testament, unique among the letters of Paul, actually unique among letters, ancient letters, as I'm about to explain. Uh, Written from Corinth in the year pretty much 57 AD. And uh, we can be pretty definite about this. I've actually stood uh, in Corinth and the, uh, at the ancient site of Corinth in Greece and looked over it. And it was amazing to think in this small geographical area, somewhere here, the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. And we could piece things together because of greetings in the letter and certain circumstances in the letter that he mentions. We can tell it's coming from Corinth at around this time. It was the end of his third missionary journey. He had completed his missionary journeys and before his final trip back to Jerusalem, as we can tell from the book of Acts. Which means, friends, that we're hearing the words when we read the letter to the Romans of a man who had spent decades planting churches and ministering and pastoring uh, and seeing what the Holy Spirit was doing all across the Roman Empire. This is a man mature now in his views and his experiences. And he's ready to say something important because he's had time to think about all that he's seen and what it all means. And as he contemplates this, we can tell he has something important to write. In fact, you know, we can actually even pinpoint in early Christian history, where it was that that he wrote this letter. Almost certainly, this is taking place in in the period described in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 through 3. You go there and you read in Acts 20, verses 2 through 3. Almost certainly, we could say this is where it had to be. It was this three-month period when he had finished his missionary journey, his third missionary journey, and he'd kind of come to the end of a certain Uh, phase of his life, certainly, and he was about to go to Jerusalem, and then, as it turns out, I don't know if he was expecting this, but as it turns out, he he was then going to Rome on the dime of the Roman Empire. But this was what he was doing now across across all of Greece was now finished. In fact, he says that in, in Romans 15, he says, I have fulfilled my ministry. So this is where we're getting the Apostle Paul's words here. We're getting him at a time when he was mature in his views and he was ready to say something. Um, In fact, it it would have taken him probably those three months, all of those three months. We, We tend to think maybe Paul just sat down and dashed these things off, but it was a much bigger production, ancient letter writing. Um... E. Randolph Richards, a scholar, did a study on this, I think about 15 years ago now, it's very helpful, about letter writing in the ancient world. And uh, one of the things we can say about Romans is it is uh, ridiculously long. It's it's not only the longest of Paul's letters, it's just long. (laughs) There, There really aren't any examples that we can go to in the Old Testament. We have plenty of letters. People in the ancient times, they loved to write letters. They really did enjoy letter writing. Uh, and when they had the means, they, they had the materials, they could do it, they would do it. But the letters they would write would be short. Uh, the average letter length, if you've ever read Philemon, 
later in the New Testament. That would be the length of a letter. That's like the average letter length. There's nothing like uh, the letter to the Romans, even uh, from people who had the means to do it. There were um, people who were wealthy because of, of the cost of these letters, who could write long letters and, and who had something to say. I'm thinking of ancient writers like um, Seneca or Cicero. These were guys who were you know, fond of expressing themselves and they had, they had plenty of means uh, to, to write letters. There's nothing as long as the letter to the Romans from them. We have their letters. This man had something important to say. And that's what we're getting in this treasure of a letter. If we're looking at the cost of the letter, and Richards is very good here, he gives us an estimate. He said, in today's money, to write something of the length of the book of, of Romans, because of the cost of materials, getting a secretary, editing, and drafts that would be made, it would cost, just for the letter itself, something over $2,000 in today's terms. You know? And I don't think uh, that a tent maker would probably have that amount of money, $2,000, lying around. You know? So he, that means Paul had patrons. He had supporters. He had people who were saying, you know, this is something we, can, we need to get behind. This is important to do. To back him, he has deep relations now in the church of Corinth. And we have, we have support for this kind of an enterprise uh, to, to write something like this. Why? Because Paul wanted to get something important down. It was worth taking that time. It was worth taking that expense to say something important here. He's not dealing with any church you know, catastrophes. He's not putting out any fires in this church like he is in other letters. He's never been there. He's never been to the Roman church. So he doesn't, he's not as familiar with their congregation. They're not like writing him asking questions. Uh, he doesn't have real, you know, crushing problems to deal with, except the one problem that he has seen across all of the churches, across the whole Roman Empire, and that is the problem of the church shared by Jews and Gentiles and Jews and Gentiles coming together uh, in those congregations and to be one church. That's on his mind. That's one of the themes of the letter. But he doesn't have important things, um, you know, important specific church matters to address. And there's another way in which this is kind of special, this letter. It is from Paul, and, and, and that is Paul alone. Um, you, uh, often, very often, usually I would say in ancient times, uh, letters would be written by, uh, in kind of a communal way. We tend to think uh, uh, the way we write letters, we go up into a room, we close the door, and you know, we write our letters by ourselves. Or we, type, we type our letters by ourselves. But the ancient world is much more communal. So very often you would have people contributing their voices, their thoughts to a person's letter. Uh, it wasn't just uh, done out in the remote places, probably, you know, in a place where other people were. And we can see that most of the letters of Paul are actually from Paul and someone else. It's not just from Paul. You can check me out on this. You go look at all the beginnings of the letters of the, of the Apostle Paul. They're from Paul and Silas, or a lot of times Paul and Timothy. And you might read that and think, well, oh, he's just being polite because they happen to be with him. 
you know, or there where he was writing the letter. But it can't be that because we have times when Timothy is there, but the letter is not from him. We have times when we know because of the greetings that people were with Paul, but the letter is not from, is, is, he's not saying the letter is from them. Because in the beginning of the letter, it's a very Christian practice, he's acknowledging who contributed to the letter. And as I say, most of the letters of Paul are from Paul and someone else, not Romans. Romans solely from Paul. So you see what we're getting here, folks. We're getting solely Paul giving his mature, dire message of this thing called the gospel. It's a treasure. So let's open it together. Please stand with me as uh, we hear read the beginning of the letter to the Romans, the greeting. You know. Romans 1, 1 through 7, RSV. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and designated son of God, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his, son, his name among all the nations, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, sir. Yeah, please uh, make yourself comfortable. So there was an event, according to Paul and the way that he writes in his thinking, that changed everything for Paul. There was an event that took place, and because of that event, everything Paul realized had to change, and everything did change for him. It was an event that destroyed him, and then rebuilt him. And it was, a, it, was a, it was an event that changed the way he looked at everything. He tells us in verse 4 what it was. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said that, that changed everything for the Apostle Paul. It changed how he looked at himself, certainly, so that he became somebody different because of that event. He, he saw himself now, well, he tells us right in uh, verse 2, he's, he's a servant, a bond servant, actually same word for slave uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, he's that before he's an apostle. You notice that in verse 2. Changed the way he looked at himself. Also changed how he looked at his Jewishness, how he looked at Judaism, looked at the covenants. You know, there were these Old Testament covenants. And Paul says, now this is, this is completely new. There's a new covenant. So it would be for him like the difference between living before Noah and then after Noah or before David and after David or before Moses. 
and after Moses, how that would change. God, God changed the way he's working on the earth, changed the government, changed his covenant, unfolded it. But he said, this is even bigger than all of those, this new covenant, this new final covenant that's been formed. And so you see, it's changing how he looks at himself, being Jewish, the covenant, and most importantly, changed how he looked at God. It's a big change for this first century Jew at how he looked at God. And so what I want for us is to have the same experience. I want us to change how we look at God with the Apostle Paul. And so I want to be talk, talk to you this morning about Paul's teaching on God. Right? And I know, you know, some of you will be really into that. You'd be like, yeah, let's, let's hear uh, into the theology. Others of you would be saying, you know, this theology you know, is kind of esoteric. I came to church because I have problems. I want to help with my problems. Listen to me, folks. How you look at God addresses your problems. You change how you look at God, it changes your problems. It addresses your problems. That's why it's important for us to do this and, and look at this this morning. It's not esoteric. Understanding God helps us address our problems. That's why it's important to see what changed in this, this first century Jew's view of God. And the big thing, of course, that we notice is that at this point in Paul's life, he, is, he has come to speak of another person as God. Romans clearly shows us Jesus Christ as God. And, you know, sometimes you get skeptics who come in and say, well, it doesn't really say Jesus is God. But uh, apart from places where it pretty, comes pretty close to saying that uh, grammatically, it, it's, it's really the way in which Paul talks about Jesus that a Jew could only talk about God in that way. Um, great study here was done by Chris Tilling, who, who really conclusively demonstrates how this is so, the scholar Chris Tilling. And, and he shows how the way that Paul talks about Jesus, he could only be talking about the great Yahweh. In fact, you look at uh, verse, uh, chapter 10, Paul, chapter 10, Paul quotes an Old Testament scripture about Yahweh, about the almighty Yahweh, and he applies it to Jesus Christ. Ta chapter 11 talks about the great creator, the sovereign creator. And again, it's Jesus Christ. And in the way in which he says, like God is, is uh, in you, in Romans 8, it's Christ in you, okay? The spirit of God is dwelling in you. No, it's the spirit of Christ dwelling in you. Romans 14, we need to be alive to God, but actually, no, we need to be alive to Jesus Christ. Very clear that he's talking about this other person in addition to when he says theos, which in, 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 if you're reading, the theos is a Greek word for God. Whenever Paul uses that, almost always, he means God the Father. So there are these different persons 
that are now in God. And not only that, there's a third one. We see him in verse 4. The spirit of holiness who is then brought up throughout the letter. Another character who is recognized in the divine. So as you're reading the book of Romans, I want you to notice that Paul now talks about God in, in triads. <laughs> Something I, I, uh, I tend to say now is that the, you know, the New Testament would be a lot shorter if God were not triune. Because when God is brought up, there's these three different characters that are in interaction with one another, three different persons. And that constitutes somehow God. So we see all through the book with deep conviction in an unforced way, Paul speaking in these triads, these three different characters um, who are nonetheless one, the one God, three persons in interaction. That's how he seems to be conceiving of God. And <clears throat> I want to play a game with you because we have this going on, the letter of Romans. I want to, I want to do a contest with you. Okay, we've given you, we're giving you these different aids. We handed out this outline uh, to help you kind of orient yourself in the book. We, we've given you these uh, Roman journals. If you haven't gotten yours, please pick one up. Uh, to write your thoughts as you're learning. I, I want to give you a, a contest, okay? Here's what I want you to do. And this is open to everybody, whoever can read, young or old. I want you to go through the book of Romans and try to find every time that Paul mentions or refers to the three different persons of the Trinity in the space of three verses, We'll say most of them are in two, but we'll say in the space of three verses, find all the places where God, the Lord, and the Spirit are brought together in the space of three verses. Okay, we're going to call this Pastor Sam's Pauline Triads in Romans contest. Okay, <laughs> so make a list of the places where they are in the verses, send them to me. If you find them all, you get a prize, okay? I'm going to give you a prize if you find all of them. It's simple, right? Just find the places where they are, okay? And to make it a little more difficult, a little more challenging, I'm not going to tell you how many there are. Okay? So you have to find them, okay? And you don't have to find the one that Augustine said was there, where he says this is a place where the Trinity is being referred to. And that's really hard, <laughs> But apart from that one, all the places where the three persons are brought into view in, in the space of three verses, find them and uh, you'll get a prize. And, you know, I expect you to learn something from this. I know you want to do it for the prize, but I also expect you to learn something from this. As you're doing this, here's what I would like you to do if you do decide you want to do this with me. Look and see if you can tell what the person's are doing for one another as they are doing something in our world for us. What are they doing? How are they acting towards one another? Okay, sometimes maybe you can't see it. It's not clear. Sometimes you can in the actions in which they're doing in the world. Okay, and we will learn something very important there. And the first one is right here in verses two through four. 
Okay, I'll give you the first one. See, in verses 2 through 3, talking about God and his Son and uh, God the Father, and then verse 4, the Son of God and the Spirit of holiness. Okay, that's the first one. Find the others, win a prize. And if we look at this one, what we can see is something really um, significant in which the first person of the Trinity is doing something for the second. We see it in verse 4. He designated him as the Son of God. That might be a little bit confusing. It's easy to uh, kind of misinterpret that. So you look at that and say, well, what do you mean he was designated as the Son of God? You see that in verse 4? Like maybe he wasn't before that? Okay, and so some people are uncomfortable with this, and they say, well, maybe it just means he was declared uh, the, the Son of God then. But the verb, actually, horizo, doesn't really allow that. It really does mean he was appointed the Son of God. He was installed as the Son of God. So what does that mean then? It's not like he was made at that point the eternal Son of God, as if he wasn't the eternal Son of God before that. And we know that Paul doesn't mean that because uh, he is already in this letter, he's already the Son of God. You see in verse 3, he's already the Son of God. In, in chapter 8, Paul makes very clear that, this, that Jesus Christ was pre-existent before his resurrection, before his, his life on earth, before his incarnation, he was there. Jesus Christ was there. So Paul doesn't believe that he suddenly became God's son here. So then what does he mean? Well, the key term there is in power. The key phrase to understand this is in power. He was, he was designated, appointed to be the son in power. That is, there's a new royal position for this one, Jesus Christ, in relationship to the world. The Father appointed him, he crowned him in the resurrection to reign in power as God's son. He appointed him, crowned him in this new position in relationship to the world. So it's like in other places where uh, in Acts chapter 2, Simon Peter says, um, God has made him Lord in the resurrection. Or Psalm 2, where it says, Today I have begotten you. A, a verse that's again quoted in the New Testament. I have begotten you. What does it mean? The Father is crowning Christ. He's making a place for him to flourish. He's making his enemies into his footstool. So that's something we can see in interaction in what the gracious movement of the first person of the Trinity to the second person of the Trinity, right? And then we also see the third person of the Trinity acting in response to the second. See in verse four, this, this is done in the resurrection according to the spirit. Okay, well, what does that mean, according to the spirit? We find out actually in the rest of the book of Romans. Chapter two, the Holy Spirit circumcises the heart of those who are God's people. Okay, chapter five, the Holy Spirit is the gift in the heart. Chapter seven, the Holy Spirit mediates this new life that is now in the world. Chapter eight, the Holy Spirit grounds the identity of those who come to Christ and makes them obedient children of God. So you see this activity that's going on 
uh, suddenly, you know, from the resurrection between the, the persons of God toward each other in, in, in order to do something. It's sort of like what happens, like this burst of activity that happens when you, you have um, a daughter in a family who receives a proposal in marriage, right? And uh, if there's a proposal in marriage um, and that's accepted, suddenly, you know, there's an event that happens and it, and it, and it you know, it causes all of this activity to happen in persons of the family, right? So you have the father who's suddenly very busy, you know, looking forward to the wedding, suddenly very busy writing checks, right? And you have the daughter running around looking for venues, and you have the mother planning a bridal shower, you know, there's all this busyness, and you have a father writing these checks, you know, and then you have the daughter, you know, being fitted for a dress, and you have mother getting these polar bears for some reason. And, and you have these, you have the father writing these checks. And you know what it's like. Some of you know. Actually, there's more than writing checks for the father. Maybe he has to cut, you know, he has to slice these logs, which actually turns out to be harder than you think to make these place centers for the, for the tables. And you, to go through these different saw blades to try, to try to get it done. But they're all doing this for each other, for this one purpose that's all directed. That's like what happened at the resurrection. It's, it all of a sudden activated the whole family to do all of these different things that they were doing. And we see, especially in the Christ, what he is doing for the for the first in this. In Romans 15, we read that passage where Paul actually quotes Psalm 68, a conversation between the two of them, the first and the second. And it's the one where, where the Lord, Christ the Lord says, you know, for us to do this, it's going to be tough. It's going it's, it's to be bloody. But I want, you to, I want you to know, I will take the brunt of it. I will take the hatred that is born on you, that is directed to you, and I'll bear it. I will bear the insults that are, are directed towards you. I'll take them in myself. That's Christ speaking. So it's a sobering time in what the Christ is doing. But we see the persons of God are acting for each other with graciousness. And, and the way... In, the way we see them in our world reflects something that we can't see between them in eternity. And so for us, it is revealing God to us. It is revealing the character of God. Paul even says in Romans 15 that we should imitate this activity between the divine persons revealed in this project. God is revealed. So it's, it's amazing to see what comes out in this letter of this man now in his maturity, writing down these important thoughts. The one is crowned in glory, appointed in power, according to the spirit, bearing the insults. All of this activity for what? Why? Friends, it's for the wedding. You're the wedding. You're the wedding guests in this project. It's to enact, verse 1, something in the world called the gospel. 
And you know, we, we, in the outline that we handed out for you in verse 16, we put that in bold. And we did this outline so you could go from column to column. You want to just stay on the kind of upper level, just generally this is what it's about. You want to move through the columns. You get more and more detail until you get to the end. And you can fill in verses if you want for those sections that we gave you where we listed the letter in detail. We've given you the chapters. But you'll notice in that outline that we highlighted verse 16 where Paul gives us the themes of his letter. And there are three themes. One theme is about God. One theme is about us. And the third theme is about the church together. The theme about God is that God is just. He is righteous. It's, it's uh, outlined here, kind of framed in verses 3 through 7. The gospel reveals God's righteousness, reveals God's character and justice and who he is. It also, the letter, talks about how he justifies his people, how he brings his people into right relationship to him how he makes it so his people are okay. And then the third theme is how this is for all who believe, Jews and Gentiles, the big difficulty that uh, the church has at that time, actually making a people who come from different backgrounds, different traditions, different ways of looking at God and about life and how they are brought together in Christ to be one. And so that gives us the name for our series, which is the justice of God, the just and the justifier for all who believe. The just and the justifier for all who believe. This is the justice of God. That we are, um, that we're, that's why we're calling it this. Because this is the gospel. And the center of that gospel, if we peel this back, the center of that gospel, for all this activity to make the gospel, and the center of that gospel is something called grace. We see it here, again, beginning of the letter, in the greeting, verse 7, giving grace, but even before that, in verse 5. It's repeated here at the beginning of the letter, it comes in the, at the end of the letter, in chapter 16, letter grace to grace, all about grace. And Paul uses many different words to talk about this theme, grace, gift, mercy, election, calling, favor, love, all these different kind of ways in which he uses these as synonyms for the gift that God is giving to us in salvation. Uh, it's really something. In fact, one place in Romans 5, he uses these eight different synonyms for, for the gift, for grace, in the space of three verses all about grace over and over again to unfold the meaning of that. So there's a superabundance of grace as we look at the center of what God is enacting in his triune way. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk, recent decades, a lot of study of scholars about grace in that time period. And uh, people have, have uh, kind of made the point that in second, what we call Second Temple Judaism, there were a lot of people who talked about grace. But, as John Barclay points out in a very influential book called Paul and the Gift, they didn't all mean the same thing by grace. They had different th ideas in their mind. And I'll tell you something that the Apostle Paul does that was uh, 
virtually nobody talked about this. That this gift, this grace, the meaning of grace is given to us when we are not deserving it. There's an incongruence. And a lot of people talked about grace, but, but the Apostle Paul alone is talking about a gift that's given that we do not deserve. Plenty of gifts were given in the ancient world. There's plenty of people who talked about grace and God giving gifts to people, but there was plenty of gift giving. But when you gave a gift, you gave a gift to somebody who was worth it because you were building relationship with that person. But Paul says, we were given this gift when we were not worth it and we weren't worth it. And Paul just emphasizes that over and over again, as we'll see in the letter. That's what he brings out. That the ones receiving this gift of Christ are, are unworthy of it. That's why he was destroyed and rebuilt. And that's what, friends, when we receive, this is what changes you, it changes your problems. When you recognize that if you are getting this when you do not deserve, it changes you. It changes your attitude and thereby it changes all the things that you're going through. That you have received this gift of immense worth and it wasn't something that we deserved. We're all here with the same need for this gift and that is what we'll be exploring in this precious treasure of a letter. And let us begin by coming to the table now and receiving that gift, not because we're worthy, not because we have anything to bring, but simply because God has done all of this in order to give it to us. Please stand with me.